Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, we'll be talking about corporate social media, critical perspectives on corporate social responsibility in media and communication industries with Dr. Marisol Sandoval from City University, London. Okay, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. Uh, I'm here today with Dr. Marisol Sandoval, who is a lecturer here at City. In are you a lecturer in culture and creative industries? I'm as well? actually a lecturer in cultural policy and management. A lecturer in cultural policy and management. Although I see myself more as a lecturer in cultural and creative industries. Well, we, so. we, we we should swap jobs it seems. Um, and we're going to talk today about her new book, which is called From Corporate to Social Media, Critical Perspectives on Corporate Social Responsibility in Media and Communication Industries, which is published by Routledge uh, this year, 2014. Yes. yes. Published in 2014. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating book. Um, I think it deals with a load of things uh, that are very important in terms of kind of our everyday lives. It's important in terms of the way um, we understand how our lives are mediated. And it's also important because it deals with these uh, questions from the point of view, really, of, I guess, the kind of the production uh, and corporate control uh, of things like media. But before we get into that, I'm quite interested in sort of your background and how you ended up writing a book like this. So could you tell the listeners a bit about um, what you were working on before and how this book project developed. Yes, um, so um, my background is in media studies. I've done media studies, but actually uh, I studied in, in Austria and there it's called communication studies. So it was quite um, uh, a narrow focus on communications, also a lot on um, interpersonal communication and the kind of psychological uh, communication studies. Um, that's where I'm coming from. Um, and from there, the only thing that seemed interesting to me <laughs> at that time was the things that were around um, cultural industries, the culture industry theory and Frankfurt School. So that was my entry to um, getting interested in other things than just interpersonal communication um, types of things. Uh, and then the second, second important influence to me was um, a center I was studying at, which was called ICTs and Societies, and it was about uh, information and communication technologies and society research. So that's the kind of new media dimension. And um, so I think, to some extent, these two influences are coming together in the book, in the sense that um, coming from a media background, um, very often the way media is understood in media communication studies is journalism, it's press, it's radio, it's, well, that's it, maybe now some internet things, but still there is kind of, people are very cautious about it. And um, then like things like the, the, the companies I'm covering in the book, um, like Apple, for example, or HP or Microsoft, they are not considered as media companies in media studies. So I guess like that's, that's the one, that's the broad focus on a very broad range of media industries. And the other 
focus is the critical theory perspective on that. So I, I guess like that's where both of that yeah. kind of comes together. I know because you, you've written or, or you've you've edited other things around kind of questions of, of the internet and, yes. and new media as well. Yes. What, what's the title of the, the edited book? Um, well, there's one edited book that's called uh, Internet and Surveillance, which is about internet and surveillance. <laughs> and then there's another one that I edited, and I hope I can remember the title. So, so many books. It's no, it's about social media, the information society, and something. Um, I don't, I don't really remember the exact title. Um, but it's that was based on a on a conference, um, and it's also about social media, mm. critical theories of social media, and yeah, yeah. But clearly, this intersection between, I guess, uh, communication studies, management studies, and critical theories is absolutely crucial to your work, and it, it obviously runs uh, right the way through. Um, this book that we're um, that we're discussing, and it, it'd be good actually to kind of um, to maybe introduce the book by uh, thinking about the way the book starts. You know, kind of immediately with with critical theory, with a quote from Adorno, which is to do with kind of how we do um, the kind of what was it he calls it the kind of the good politics. Right um, form of politics. Yes, uh, we might even say the quest for a good life is the quest for the right form of politics. So, how come we're talking about you know HP and Apple and Disney when we're thinking about the right form of politics? Mm. Where, where, do, where do we begin? There? Mm. Well, I think the first thing about this, I mean, obviously the book is about corporate social responsibility, and uh, when you study corporate social responsibility, you get into fields like business ethics, and you get into questions around ethics. Mm. And so I guess this quote just outlines my approach to ethics, which is not a moralistic, individualistic kind of approach to morals, um, but uh, uh, um, an approach that kind of thinks about ethics in the form, in, in the sense of politics. And that's also my understanding of Marxism and my understanding of critical theory, that it is uh, a kind of humanist and normative and political kind of theory rather than being just an economic um, framework or something. So it's about the kind of politics behind it. So that's the that's the starting point. And I think well, how this relates to to case studies in the book and what well, the approach of the book also is to think about the way our media landscape is looks like and is organized in political terms. Think about not just well these are media companies, but what does it mean that media and communication are organized in the way they're organized? What impact does that have on society, on people, on individuals, on workers, on the environment? So it's basically just like starting at the foundation, <laughs> really, and asking um, what does it mean that we have like large multinational corporations controlling our media and communication infrastructure? And this, I guess, is why Marx is so influential in, in the text, because asking the questions uh, about, uh, I suppose, how um, not just kind of, you know, issues of ownership, etc., but how the relations of production around uh, media conceived broadly is, is obviously kind of one of the core themes in the book. Yes, I mean, that's another thing where you bring together, I mean, it's a challenge to bring together Marx and corporate social responsibility. Uh, because obviously, when you take a Marxist perspective, the first thing would be like saying, well, corporate social responsibility, that's oxymoric, what's that? We don't even have to look at it, kind of. Um, so uh, it's, it's kind of a challenge to, to, to have come from a Marxist theoretical perspective and to look at corporate social responsibility. So, um, 
Yeah, so what I did kind of was, was trying to, despite this uh, initial skepticism, <laughs> um, look, look, look deeper into what, what it actually means and what we can get out of it. Because again, and that's something I take from Marx as well, is like even ideologies have some kind of rational element to them. The reason they come up is not just because people, someone invented them, but they have a kind of material foundation that come from somewhere and they also tell us some truth, even if they are false in, in, in this kind of normative critical theory framework. And I guess you do this by um, sort of not by either taking corporate social responsibility completely uh, as true or by saying it's entirely false but by working through four models mm. um, of how we think about corporate social responsibility, which I, I thought was very interesting actually, both um, from a critical management studies perspective, but also in the way that you apply them to your case studies. So you talk a bit about there being four ways to think about corporate social responsibility, reductionist, projectionist, dualist, and dialectical. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about Yes, yes, those. I'd like to do that. Um, so, basically, the, 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 I distinguish different ways of how to conceptualize and how to think about CSR um, based on the question how they relate economic and profit goals of the corporation and their social goals, because that's what CSR is about. It's about business and social impact, which is actually a, um, very interestingly quite a uh, an interesting leap. I mean, I'm getting away a bit, but I find it really interesting because when you look back historically, you have like two broad traditions. You have like the um, Adam Smith kind of tradition. Um, the social good comes automatically if people act in their own self-interest. So there, the no there is no need to actually take care of social issues. Yeah, yeah. Quite on the contrary, it's dangerous. So if you do that, you will mess up everything. And then there's the other tradition, uh, like Keynes, saying you need to, um, the, the, state, the government needs to come in because corporations, they yeah, can't yeah. fulfill that. So yeah. you have like two things. You have to tame the animal spirit. Yeah, so it's like, and the, but both in the end agree that corporations are like, um, self-interested and so there needs either there is a miraculous mechanism that makes it good or you need the government to make it good and CSR kind of assumes now well actually we don't need all of that corporations can do it themselves and there you can also see the kind of um, um, neoliberal implications of the CSR discourse um, anyway, it took me a bit away, but it's, it's like interesting how this kind of economic goals and social goals and how we achieve them come together in, in, in the CSR debate in a very new way that is symptomatic, I think, for the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. Um, okay, so but then like, I distinguish these approaches, and the first one is the reductionist one, which is very instrumental in conceptualizing this relation, saying that... Um, Corporations should engage in CSR because it actually helps them. It benefits the bottom line for various reasons because it can improve their image, their reputation. In terms of like diversified commodities, it can also open up new markets for green and sustainable products, as we um, see. It can help them to pre prevent regulation, to open up contentious markets like healthcare in, in the context of privatization. So there are all these kinds of ways in which CSR can be beneficial for corporations. So yeah. embrace it. That's it. But it's very interesting. You also find this a lot in management books about CSR that have titles like From Green to Gold, yeah, yeah, yeah. how you can make bigger profits by building a better world. Like yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's, it's ultimately, I guess, a kind of a cynical... Uh, yes, it's, it's very, very clear. I mean, very, and it's not hidden at all. I mean, they made yeah. the argument. It's like just, it's just there. Um, that's the one thing. Um, then there is the kind of 
do a list, what I call do a list, which kind of separates that, and that's a very old tradition of philanthropy. Yeah. So you first you make money, and then you do good. So it's two separate things, and you find this still a lot. Like um, big philanthropists still have these arguments. Um, it goes back to Andrew Carnegie with. Um, the idea that the poor are too stupid to take care of themselves so the rich have to take their money and then give it back to them but also like um, Bill Gates says he, he, he finds the idea of mixing um, thinking about money and about social things schizophrenic so he wants to keep them separate so that's still a, a tradition that is there very much but that's the kind of dualist and if you think about um, the cultural sector you see this with organizations like BP sponsoring major arts organization which is exactly this this kind of um, dualist perspective which is very problematic in many respects um, and then there is the projectionist ones one which projectionist doesn't really say a lot so I'm not really convinced of the term but it's kind of a moral argument about how you can make um, you can improve capitalism and you can actually create a good capitalism. Um, you can create profit in a socially responsible way. Um, well, I think probably the idea of social enterprise play, plays into that um, a lot. Um, yeah, so that's the idea. You can make money, but you can do it in a good way. So that's, well, basically that's an assumption that a good capitalism is possible. Maybe that's... Yeah, that's this one. And then um, what I frame as the dialectical one is basically the critique of CSR that kind of tries to think what's the relation between generating um, profit and doing good. How does the very fact that you generate profit always have, have this moment of exploitation? How, um, how, what are the kind of, what does it have to do with like competition that forces like businesses to do certain things they might not want to do? So where are the structural frictions between uh, acting responsibly and um, being profitable? Because I think uh, there is a lot of niceness in this discourse about CSR. You can yeah, we do everything, and that's like it also. Even if you look at um, policy discourses about sustainability, it always has like we are economically successful and we save the planet and we do good and we do all these things. And so, when you look in practice, where does it actually conflict, and where does the goal to make money conflict with the with the goal of, of doing good? And that's where I look in my what I look at in my case studies. I look at different themes where there are frictions between these these two different goals. Yeah, I mean that, that's the kind of the uh, the moment in in CSR that you, that you explore. Uh, both in terms of particular corporate case studies, um, I think uh, there are seven of them in total, eight, uh, eight, eight in total, but, but also in terms of the kind of uh, the business practices that these corporate case studies are important mm-hmm. for, whether it's labour relations mm-hmm. or the projection of particular political ideologies uh, or the kind of control of uh, the infrastructure of communications, things like net mm-hmm. uh, neutrality. But before we talk about those, I think the other um, sort of contribution the book makes is to, uh, we, we sort of touched on it already, it is to developing or expanding what we mean when we talk about communication studies and what we mean when we talk about media studies. And obviously this uh, is something that is going on with uh, Various writers, uh, Mosca, Toby Miller, these kind of people who are starting to say communication studies isn't just the communicating bit, it's the technologies that allow the communications, it's the infrastructure, it's you know the kind of the wiring that underpins the net and stuff like that. And, and obviously you've got a chapter um, devoted to this to try and kind of 
uh, broaden out our idea of, of I guess, what uh, media and communication uh, industries are. So could you say a bit about how you conceptualise those, uh, and I guess what you're writing in, in opposition to? Mm. Yes, um, so definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the attempt to broaden the, the research foci of, of media and communication studies in a sense that it doesn't look just at the kind of the symbolic and the uh, meaning and content aspects of it, but also at things like um, work and environmental impact. I think that's a huge a huge problem in today's media and communication studies, that we think of them as being something immaterial, something symbolic, something um, that doesn't have like a material impact, which is very problematic. And it's interesting because you find this discourse also in critical writings about, um, about the media and about culture and communication, and it connects very much to these... Um, liberal fantasies of the information revolution and of, well, very counter to the kind of critical Marxist perspective saying that if we have more communication, more culture, more technologies, um, society will transform automatically. There is no more need for class politics. Um, we will just a society where everyone has good work. The bad features of industrial capitalism will just disappear. Uh, and, well, even critical research plays in the hands of this kind of... of of ideology, really. And so I think what I want to highlight also is this need to think about the material um, dimension of, or material, like the tangible dimension of um, cultural industries, which have a huge impact uh, on the environment and on work and uh, on these things that are very much ignored. I mean, Moscow has highlighted this like 10 years ago, that there is a lack of research on work in media studies. I think by now there has been quite a lot of, of focus on that. Um, yeah, but uh, well, it, it is the study kind of contributes to that. Also, following something like um, Raymond Williams' idea of a cultural materialism, which also has very strong connection to this idea, actually saying that um, many critical studies on culture instead of being too materialist, they're actually not materialist enough because they think culture is like the superstructure removed from the economic base, which it obviously is not. So it's actually really bringing that back and becoming really materialist by considering the material dimensions um, of culture. And that shapes the industries I'm looking at in the book. Um, so I'm looking at the content producers, but that's just one of the industries I'm looking at. I'm also looking at the infrastructure, telecommunications. I'm looking at hardware. Uh, I'm looking at software um, and new media kind of new media industries. I mean, maybe if we pick three um, of your case studies to kind of to illustrate that. Um, the, the first one I think um, will be, I guess, familiar to absolutely everybody because. Um, it seems as if we have any interaction with uh, anything online where we're involved with, with this company, and that's Google. And you, it follows the same format as the rest of your case studies where you kind of uh, try to understand what the company itself thinks it's doing with CSR. And then you quite almost kind of amusingly point out, but hang on, they're doing all of this other stuff that really isn't kind of mm -hmm. uh, what they say or what they claim mm -hmm. they're doing. And in the case of Google, it's around things like surveillance and capturing mm -hmm. and keeping people's data. So could you say a bit about yeah, Google's approach to CSR yes. and what it's maybe it's uh, 
limitations or its uh, contradictions are. Well, there's one interesting thing about Google, because Google is probably now it's one of the companies that don't actually, because most of the companies I study, they produce CSR reports and they've done so for many years. Google is one of them who doesn't produce a CSR report, but they have plenty of information on their website about how they perceive themselves as being ethical. So their big, um, famous corporate motto is they can make money without being evil. Um, but what I find interesting about Google and this new media sector is that actually it seems that we have almost, we are, they are starting to move beyond CSR, like a new kind of corporation that doesn't even need a CSR report because exactly because they are this new type of immaterial company which have, that have business models that from the start are socially responsible. So there is no need to kind of justify what they're doing like an industrial corporation would have to do. Um, they are just, their business model is good for everyone. And that's the main theme in, in, in Google's um, discussion of, of social responsibility and ethics, um, what is that their business model from the start is, is on, built on an ethical foundation, what they're doing is good for everyone, it's good for advertisers, it's good for people because um, people get useful ads, um, the more personalized the ads are, the more useful they are, so it's, it's good for everyone, um, that's their rhetoric in terms of ads, but they also have like the same kind of, also very ethical ideas in terms of in, um, in regard to the workforce, yeah, so good work culture and all these things, which is which I don't really cover, but this would be another theme that could have I could have covered, uh, and so yeah, that's the way Google frames its business model as being socially responsible from the start, um, good for everyone, which of course is is problematic because when you think bit deep, when you go a bit deeper, looking at personalized advertisements and this business model, it has like widespread implications for individuals, like for the individual data and so on, but also in terms of what we do um, to the internet, creating, it, uh, creating a space of consumer culture, whatever interest you have, there's always a product and always an ad for it, so there's like really um, um, reinforcing the internet as this very, very commercialized space. And then, of course, there are other problems in, in terms of data, we large searchable databases that are created and, well, we don't know um, for what purposes these data are used and by whom and so on. So the, the vision of, I guess, a kind of commodified, surveilled um, internet is connected to the broad question of who, um, I guess, kind of controls the infrastructure. Mm. And that's dealt with in your chapter on AT&T. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you could kind of do the same thing and talk about their approach to CSR and then talk about some of the issues around, uh, I guess the big question is net neutrality, but, you know, the kind yeah. of broader question is, is like, who owns the pipes? Yeah. Yeah, well, at and um, let me think if I can remember, they have one of these very generic CSR themes, like not nothing really specific, um, something you can find in many CSR pro, uh, reports, um, hugely contradictory. I mean, you can see that these reports are written for a very diverse audience, they're written for investors, they're written for consumer advocacy groups, they're written for NGOs, and so you can find statements for all of them, kind of. So they're very contradictory. There's on the one hand always this story about being this, the 
being responsible is at the, at the core of their business and they do it because they think it's important and then you find this very instrumental argument. So I think there is nothing very special about AT&T, at least I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> but there is nothing really, really special about CSR uh, communication of AT&T. Yeah, but the theme I cover, and I think since, I, since the book came out and I've written it, there has been quite a lot of changes in terms of the net neutrality regulation again. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the thing I cover I cover in, in regard to AT&T, um, their arguments for net neutrality and a contrast them with mostly free press and their argument against net, uh, for net neutrality. And what is interesting, I think, here is that AT&T doesn't mention net neutrality at all in their CSR communication. So that's one example where the main theme, which you would think is a core theme about their social responsibility, is just never, ever mentioned. Um, it's mentioned on... Uh, other, like they have written letters to the FCC, uh, they have blog posts where they mention it, but it's never in their CSR communication. Um, so I think there's like one example where you can see that there are two different discourses going on that are completely separate from each other. There's on the one hand the critical discourse by organizations like Free Press, and then you have like uh, AT&T doing their thing, but it's like completely um, disconnected. Yeah. So, we might, we might do two more. I'm, a, I'm really interested almost to kind of get you to talk about all of them actually mm-hmm. because, you know, you talk about Microsoft and Apple, but you contrast um, both, um, I guess, the kind of CSR approaches, but also with what's problematic about them. So Apple uh, and their relationship to Foxconn and kind of labor rights in China are contrasted to Microsoft and their, I guess, kind of very um, problematic relationships with things like patents, mm. with control of software, with the kind of, um, I guess, all-encompassing vision of what a Microsoft operating system and, and software I mean, what's probably interesting is different ways. I mean, for each of these companies, um, I picked one theme, mm. one um, CSR theme that I thought was core to their company uh, and discussed it. And what you can see is that there are very different ways um, the company is uh, deal with these things in their CSR communication. So one is like AT&T, they just don't mention it at all. And then there is another strategy um, that is, which is really, really interesting. You find the way a company frames the issue is opposed to how critical actors are framing the issue. Like Google saying advertising is good, critics are saying advertising is bad. Microsoft saying patents are good, critics are saying patents are bad. And it's just a completely different story because Microsoft actually says it's their social responsibility to patent, to um, to create this incentive for um, being creative because intellectual property is right are perceived as an incentive for being creative. So they say encouraging that um, is actually their social responsibility, whereas critics are saying, well, exactly that's socially irresponsible. And Microsoft is a fascinating case study because um, there are lots of documents available about internal documents about Microsoft that were leaked at some point and that show how Microsoft uh, relates to things like open source software or also historically and how this attitude has changed from a, a very confrontational attitude in the early 2000s to something like let's embrace it, like let's benefit from, from it. Um, and it's actually really interesting how in certain um, internal documents in early Microsoft documents, they actually acknowledge that they can never reproduce the benefits of open source within one organization because they never have so many developers available and they can never reproduce that. So um, open source is far ahead of them, so they were really afraid of, of, of things like Linux. And again, another thing is uh, about 
there's this very interesting quote quote from um, um, I don't know who it was, but one of the key Microsoft executives saying like if people had understood how patents work, like if he said it in the 90s, how if people had understood how patents work like 20 years ago, the industry would be at the standstill. Yeah. And our solution is let's patent as much as we can, which is like seems absolute. I mean. <laughs> worrying. Um, so yeah, and and so but, but Microsoft is one of these examples where you have like completely reframed debate of the same issue. You also have this in in other corporations. Actually, you have it always when it comes to intellectual property rights. Like also with humanity, where you look at file sharing, you have the same kind of debate. File sharing is bad. Whereas um, we need to protect copyright. That's our social responsibility. And then um, I have companies, and then yeah, I have companies for which I studied environmental things and work, and they have a very different way of responding. Um, these companies where I studied environmental effects and work, they kind of acknowledged their problems and promised that they work towards solutions. Like Apple, for example, I studied the supply chain. Um, also, I studied the working conditions in the supply chain for Disney, which is probably not that an obvious choice because you could write a lot about Disney so and, it's, their, it's and their ideology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I just decided not to do that because there has been written quite a lot about that. So I've, I, I looked more into their merchandising and also working conditions in these toy factories, yeah. which are very similar to the working conditions at Apple, so it's not that different. And then for HP, I looked at the environmental impact in particular at e-waste. And for all of these three, you can see that they have this kind of attitude, like, we will, be, we will improve. We know that there is a problem, but we improve, we improve, we improve. And I think the reason why that is, is that the critique of the environment and working conditions is, is a critique of, of, of symptoms. It comes from the kind of capitalist organization of these industries, and that's just symptoms, and they can kind of be treated. But when you, when you challenge Microsoft about intellectual property rights, I mean, that's the very foundation of their business model. They could never say, okay, yeah, that's a problem. They will never come to that stage where they acknowledge that because it's a much more fundamental critique. And this is where it also comes interesting that the, the, the key, well, what makes the, what makes the new media industries for many people so interesting is because their very foundation on which their business model is based is, is perceived as problematic, whereas the foundation of other business models is often by by activist groups not perceived as problematic, but rather some aspects of what they're doing, rather than the very basis, like intellectual property for, my, for Microsoft or for Vivendi. Yeah, so I think um, that's the difference in the, in the, in the discourses. The, the role, um, particularly of, of property, uh, which is you know a major field of discussion uh, around culture and creative industries, is part of the way that you both bring the book to a conclusion, but also uh, point and gesture towards alternative models mm. and ultimately answer um, the, the kind of idea that there might be a, a sort of emancipatory or, or mm. a form of liberation that comes through social media, but it's about being social at the level of productive forces yeah. and relations of production, yeah. not just being social at the level of kind of chatting to people you don't know online. Yeah. So uh, I wonder if you could sort of talk a bit about how, uh, as you call it, the kind of the logic of property and the logic of um, the common and the commons mm. come together. Mm. Um. Well, I just kind of, I mean, obviously what we see on 
especially in the kind of new media industries, all this kind of discourse uh, about the commons. And I kind of pick up on that because it, uh, at least in, in, in thinking it offers an alternative of thinking about media industries as private and commercial, you can think about it um, as, as commons. And, well, one main argument is that social media... Uh, the social media we, we talk about and we know are, in fact, private media. They're not actually social in terms of being socially owned and controlled. So they are private media, and so you can see that they follow this kind of logic of, of property in the sense that they are economically privately owned, they are politically uh, privately controlled, so the direction our um, online media culture is going is, is completely out of, of hands of the public. It's a private decision. So huge economic decision, economic power, uh, huge decision power, and it also kind of follows a very kind of individualist culture, individualistic um, kind of values. And I kind of tried to confront that with what could be a logic of the social in, in, a, in a much broader sense, and I use the term of the common because that's the discourse that is actually happening, but that just question what could be common commonly owned, commonly controlled, and based on kind of common values, values such as like solidarity and cooperation instead of individualism and competition. So it kind of just um, suggests uh, uh, gestures towards an alternative model um, that could be um, a common, common media culture instead of a private media culture, and such a common media culture could in the end maybe be a truly social media culture. And... Because we're recording this on Halloween, I thought we could conclude with, uh, with the discussion about the monsters because uh, almost the first thing you run into in the book um, isn't the kind of the discussion of um, you know, what does CSR mean yes. or what is critical Monster. theory. It's vampires and yes. Frankenstein. And you come back to this in the conclusion yes. as well to kind of assess the extent to which those particular metaphors are are appropriate. So, yeah. Well, the, the reason why I started thinking about the monster was because there were two quotes that I found um, really important, one by Adorno and one by Marx. And the Adorno quote is um, saying, um, critical theory seeks to raise the stone under which the monster lies breathing. And I think that was for me really important because, yes, I mean, does CSR suggest we have a like nice and friendly capitalism, or is this just a stone under which we find the actual monster? So that's the idea of ideology critique. So this was one one once the monster appeared in in my kind of um, analytical framework, and the second time it appeared was when Marx um, said um, that it's a problem that there are no factory inspections because this actually means drawing the magic cap over our heads to pretend there are, there are no monsters. We don't see the monsters. He kind of reverses the metaphor of the magic cap. Um, but both of them have this kind of monster. And so this is where the, where, the, where the idea comes from, the ideology critique. And to look at deeper, is the monster still there? Is the monster gone? Or is it, is it just hiding? And we have this image of this friendly capitalism. And so that's where it came from initially. And then in the conclusion, I kind of yeah, look back at it and... Uh, I find there's a very interesting interpretation of Frankenstein and the commons that I kind of like because um, the, the Frankenstein is usually interpreted as symbolizing 
um, the struggle between capitalists and the working class. So Dr. Frankenstein creates the monster, and he has to have this unstoppable drive to create the monster. And this has been interpreted that it's the same way as capitalism is creating the working class. And in the end, the working class is threatening capitalism in the same way that Frankenstein's monster is threatening Frankenstein. And you can think about it the same way about the commons in media culture, because um, media companies in, in a digitalized kind of world, they need, they constantly produce. I mean, media companies always, but it becomes particularly obvious in media culture. They are constantly producing comments. They are producing things that are uh, get out of their control, that are available online, that suggest an alternative way of organizing culture. Uh, but they have to produce them. They have to make money out of them. But at the same time, this opens up a new space for new ways of distributing culture. And so they, the comments are threatening um, media communication, private media communication companies, but at the same time they can't stop producing them. So I think you could also apply the same metaphor for to to the commons. I think. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, what is your sort of next project then? Are you going to develop more in this area, or are you going to do something kind of well, actually, different? I, I, do I do something different, but now recently I realised that it's completely connected. Actually, it's the next. It's, it's a logical next step. So I've been looking at. Uh, at um, worker cooperatives in the cultural sector as a response to precariousness, individualization, and inequality in cultural sector work. Um, and yes, I think you could say that worker co-ops are a form of commons at the level of labor, like in the organizational level. So it actually suggests alternative models of like bringing the logic of the common into the uh, organization and to the organizational level. So actually it's a complete continuation um, from the book. And are you yeah. planning a book on that or something? Yes, I will see. I mean, I might, it might end up being a book, but that's like very far uh, into the future. I've just started exploring a bit and, and doing some interviews with people in cultural sector worker clubs in London. Um, and yeah, I'll see how it, how it goes. I'm very curious. I'm not sure yet. Cool. Good luck. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, we were talking about from corporate to social media, critical perspectives on corporate social responsibility in media and communication industries with Dr. Marisol Sandoval from City University, London. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. I look forward to uh, speaking to you on the next episode.